Part 2 Duttiyampi And for a second time. Two years later, on the 30th of April 1979, accompanied by his American attendant Dajan Pabakuro, Lung Po set off to the West for a second and final time. On this trip, he was to visit America as well as Europe, but his first destination was England, where the EST had invited him to give encouragement to Ajahn Sumedho's community and to see for himself the latest developments in their efforts to establish a forest monastery. It was an exciting time for the Sangha in England, and a pivotal one. After being based for two years, confined, some of the monks would have said, in Hampstead Vihara, a property had been acquired in a beautiful stretch of countryside, just over a hundred kilometres to the south of London. The move was to take place in June, on Long Po's return to England following the American leg of his journey. In the meantime, he took up residence in Hampstead Vihara. For the first few days, he enjoyed some quiet time with the Sangha. One of the monks he met for the first time, Ajahn Suchitto, had joined the community the previous summer after some years in central Thailand. Having heard so much about Luang Po, it was finally a chance to meet him in the flesh. He was not disappointed. It was more the manner of the conversation than the topics that counted. He had a way of questioning an attitude I had in an affirmative way, such as, Having to eat is really a nuisance, eh, Suchito? With a big smile, that made it really easy to engage with him, just by saying, yes. And yet, he gave you the feeling that you and he were on the same wavelength, and he was affirming you. After half an hour of this, I felt tremendously uplifted and at ease. He had opened a window onto a world of joy and unfaltering response to suffering. The way out of the jungle of the mind was to stop creating it through fear and self-consciousness. The holy life seemed so simple and such a good and joyful way to live. It was exactly the kind of message that my anxious and tense mind needed. Long Paul's reputation in England had steadily grown over the past two years. Having heard of his visit, Buddhist groups throughout the country had been in touch inquiring as to the possibility of them receiving teachings from him. In response, Ajahn Sumedho invited Luang Po on a road trip to the north of England and Scotland, a journey during which teaching engagements could be combined with some sightseeing. Luang Po was amenable. Is that a question? The minibus containing Luang Po and his small entourage made their first stop in Manchester at the Samatha Society, a Theravada Buddhist meditation group. Despite the fact that his audience consisted of people committed to inner tranquility, many of the questions put to Luang Po were of a convoluted intellectual nature that severely tested Ajahn Pabakaro's translation skills. One particular questioner took an excruciatingly long time to articulate a question that, in the end, was little more than a request for Luang Po to agree to his position on a certain matter. Before he'd stopped talking, a gently smiling Luang Po turned to Ajahn Pabakaro and inquired whether the man was asking a question or giving him a dhamma talk. Luang Po's replies to the questions were, for the most part, characteristically direct and pragmatic. When I'm afraid, I feel it in my belly. But at other times, the awareness is in the brain. Why is that? That's just the way it is. 
Love arises here, replied Lung Po, pointing to his heart. And fear, and fearlessness. You don't need to talk about the navel or the brain at all. Everything converges here at the heart. When there's a feeling of fear, then who's afraid? It isn't the navel, and it isn't the brain. The feeling of fear or fearlessness, the feeling of pleasure or pain, who is that? Who is the one who feels? It is Nama Dhamma. It is the way things are. The brain and navel are inanimate matter. There's nothing to them. Feelings are Nama Dhamma, and it's their nature to be that way. If there are no causes and conditions for them to arise, they're inert. If there are causes and conditions, they spring up in the mind. That's the nature of things. So the great masters say, if you feel afraid, it doesn't matter. Just say to yourself, it's impermanent, impermanent. Pleasure is impermanent. Pain is impermanent. Tell feelings that, and they'll soon disappear. They're changeful. I've read in the scriptures that Nibbana is the cessation of suffering. In my meditation, I have experienced a state in which there is no form. The mind is vast, infinite, without suffering. I assume that's probably not Nibbana. What's your opinion? Suffering is an immaterial phenomenon. It's not a form which disappears in meditation. Suffering is a feeling that arises in the mind. We don't know what to call it, and so we have agreed on the word suffering. It's a label that we have decided upon. Suffering arises, and then it passes away. The peace of mind you described is merely a calm state of mind. It's not the peace of freedom from suffering. If suffering had come to an end, then you wouldn't have this kind of doubt. There would be no doubt at all. Truly nothing left to doubt. That is the peace that comes through wisdom. With samadhi, you're peaceful as long as you've got your eyes closed and there are no disturbing sounds. If you get home and sounds disturb you, then your mind's in a state of turmoil all over again. You've merely gained the peace of no disturbance, the result of samadhi, not wisdom, not the real thing. If it were the result of wisdom, there wouldn't be this kind of doubt. It would be the end of the matter. But he could also speak in an enigmatic, zen-like style that employed simple phrases in a way that confounded rational thought. Suppose you're walking up and down. Walking, you're aware that you're walking. Stopping, you're aware that you're stopping. But suppose you're not walking forward or back, and you haven't stopped. What's that? Exactly where is that? How do you exist at that moment? Now there's no more walking forward. There's no more walking back. There's nothing to doubt anymore. There's no doubt while walking forward because doubt has come to an end. There's no doubt while walking back because doubt has come to an end. There's no doubt standing still because it's all come to an end. There's no more doubt in the mind anymore. This is the nature of wisdom. Nothing is born in the mind. Manjushri 
From Manchester, they drove further northwest to Manjushri Institute in the Lake District, a community consisting of a core of Tibetan monastics and a larger number of Western ordained and lay practitioners. It was Longpo's first contact with Tibetan Buddhism. He found at Manjushri a different conception of monasticism, one in which the distinction between monks and laity was more fluid than he was used to. The revelation that in this particular lineage, monks might wear lay clothes, and even hold down a job in the local community, seemed bizarre to him. Although it would be a short visit, Long Po appreciated the warm welcome he received from the whole community, and enjoyed the colourfulness of a tradition that was as exotic for him as it was for most inhabitants of rural northwest England. The countryside around Manjushri was glorious, and with Lung Po obviously fascinated by the flora and fauna, so different from all that he was acquainted with in Thailand, a picnic was arranged. Accompanying the group on the trip was Anagarika Philip. Anagarika means one who has left the household life and is equivalent to the term postulant that appears earlier in the book. Philip went on to become a monk with the Pali name of Vajiro, and, currently, as of 2017, is the abbot of the branch monastery Sumedarama in southern Portugal. After the meal, while Anagarika Philip was washing Longpo's bowl for him, Longpo approached him, took hold of the bowl, and gave Philip lengthy and detailed instructions on the correct way to look after it. Soon Ajahn Sumedo came over to listen. Finishing his exposition, Lung Po, chuckling, said to Philip, Ajahn Sumedo can teach you the way to Nibbana, and I'll show you how to look after a bowl. Later, in a session with the Manjushri community, Lung Po gave a discourse on the Four Noble Truths. He spoke humorously about the challenges that teachers face with lazy students. He said that he had asked their teacher whether it was the same here as in Thailand, and had been told that it was. He talked about the foolishness of wanting things to be other than what they were, or could be, saying it was like wanting a chicken to be a duck. He said that the ordinary suffering of being alive was like the unavoidable pain of a doctor's needle entering the skin. The suffering of those who grasped onto things as self, or belonging to self on the other hand, was like that felt after being injected with poison. At one point he spoke about dealing with anger, Set a clock down in front of you, and make a vow for the anger to disappear in two hours. See if you can do it. If anger really belonged to you, you could. But in fact, sometimes two hours have passed and you're still angry. Other times the anger's gone in an hour. If you identify with the anger as being yours, then you suffer. If anger is who you are, you should have power over it. If it doesn't follow your wishes, then it's fake. Don't believe it. Don't believe in your feelings of happiness or sadness, love or hate. They're all lying to you. When you get angry, is it painful or pleasurable? If it's painful, then why do you hang on to it? Why don't you throw anger away? How can you be intelligent and wise if you don't do that? You've been angry so many times in your life. Sometimes it leads to family arguments. 
Sometimes you spend the whole night crying, but still you get angry. Still you hold on to it in your heart. And so you go on suffering for as long as you live. This is the way samsara works. If you understand suffering, then you can solve the problem. For this reason, the Buddha said there is no skillful means to free the mind from suffering that excels seeing not-self. That's all that's needed. It's the supreme, sublime remedy. The journey continued northwards. Edinburgh, their next stop, was the city that impressed Long Po the most on his travels. He had already seen grand stone buildings in London and elsewhere, but he found a whole city built out of stone around the foot of a huge volcanic rock especially impressive. It filled him with admiration for the skill of the stonemasons. His hosts in Edinburgh included a young woman, Kate, who was shortly to shave her head and become sister, and later Ajahn Chandasiri, a founding member of the nun's order in his new monastery in southern England. During the evening question-and-answer session, she recalls a question on a topic that, at the time, interested her greatly. A professional flautist began to ask about music. What about Bach? Surely there's nothing wrong with that. Much of his music is very spiritual, not at all worldly. And when she had finished, he said quietly, Yes, but the music of the peaceful heart is much, much more beautiful. Disturbing the Sound On his return from Scotland, Lung Po took up residence at Hampstead Vihara once more. Every evening, people came to meditate and receive teachings. The Vihara was situated upon a busy main road, and traffic noise was a constant backdrop to the evening meditation sessions. On some nights, the rumble and hum from the road was drowned out by the sound of rock music from the pub across the way. Lung Po gave some advice on how to deal with this distraction. Today, I would like to offer you a small reflection. It concerns the view that the traffic noise is a disturbance to meditation. In fact, isn't it true that rather than the traffic noise disturbing you, it's you that are disturbing the traffic noise. Suffering arises through this kind of wrong view. If we think the problem is the noise, then we aim our remedies at the traffic noise or other people instead of at the real cause. With wrong view, suffering is endless. Do you have this wrong view in your mind? Investigate this within. Take my words away with you today and consider them. The right view is that we disturb the traffic noise, it's not that it disturbs us. Or, more profoundly, when there's no sense of self, of traffic, or of sound, then the whole business comes to an end. Look at your mind and reflect on this point. The crucial mistake was to assume ownership of impermanent phenomena. It was the essence of wrong view. What about if you were to sit here meditating today and pain were to appear, but there was no sense of it having an owner? How would that be? Are you close to that view or still far away? Nobody who still has the wrong understanding that pain and pleasure belong to them will find lucid calm. What is this practice for? 
Who is it for? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever reflected on the matter? Two young Englishmen who were to go on to ordain as monks and become senior members of the Western Sangha in Europe met Luang Por for the first time during this period. The first, Philip, now Ajahn Chandapalo, had attended the question-and-answer session in Edinburgh. The second, Chris, now Ajahn Karuniko, was one of the young men who went to meditate at the Hampstead Vihara during Luang Por's visit. He would recall. He used to tease people, ask people questions and then tease them a little bit. So when I sat there and I was at his feet, just in awe of this wonderful man, he looked down at me and said, What do you think it would be like to sit there for one whole hour without one thought coming into your mind? I thought, oh, very enlightened. But he said, like a stone. And I couldn't answer that. Before leaving for America, Luang Por mentioned in a casual tone that it might be time for a change of leadership and that he was thinking of having Ajahn Sumedho return to Thailand with him. It was the proverbial bombshell, the renovation of the property they had acquired in the countryside and to which they would be moving in a short two months' time was going to be a long, arduous task. The willingness and inspiration of the community to bear with all the hard work ahead was due in no small measure to the confidence everyone felt in Ajahn Sumedho. It was generally agreed that for him to be recalled would be a disastrous move that would throw the whole project into jeopardy. Luang Por, having given everybody a good chance to look at their hopes, attachments and fears, and with the matter still unresolved, left for America. A Pacific State The two monks arrived in Seattle, Ajahn Pabakaro's hometown, on the 25th of May. They were met at the airport by Norm and Jean Kappel, Ajahn Pabakaro's parents, together with Paul Breiter, ex-venerable Varapanyo, and a welcoming group of Seattle Buddhists. As soon as Jean caught sight of her son, she rushed joyfully across the crowded concourse. Ajahn Pabakaro almost panicked. It looked as if she was going to give him a big hug. He would be breaking one of the rules of the discipline right in front of his teacher. Strictly speaking, a serious offence, a Sangadi Sesa, is only committed if a monk has physical contact with a woman's body with lustful intention. But the accepted practice of this rule in the Thai Sangha is to avoid even innocent contact. He braced himself to repel her in the most tactful and least hurtful way. But as Jean got within a few feet, she sunk to her knees and, to his great relief, gave three neat bows. Paul Breiter took the opportunity to offer his services as a lay attendant for the duration of Luang Por's visit. When Luang Por saw that his former disciple still kept his head shaved and learnt about his lifestyle, he laughed with pleasure and said that he was neither fish nor fowl, neither monk nor layman. In the coming days, he was to joke how Paul had become a special kind of transgendered person. They stayed at the Kappel's home in the city for two or three days, and then moved up to their cabin in the mountains. During this first week, Luang Por seemed exhausted and spent most of the time resting. Sometimes he would discuss Dhamma with his two disciples. On occasion, he would have them turn on the television. 
Completely unintelligible though the language was to him, he was interested in watching and absorbing the images of an alien way of life. On drives around the area, Luang Po was observant of his surroundings, the culture, the customs, the behavior and demeanor of the people he met. Sometimes he would point people out and express how deserving of compassion they seemed to him. On one occasion, he remarked, They really like to try out everything in this society. It seemed to Paul that he was assessing the best way to teach in America. This was confirmed when one day Luang Paul started talking about Dhamma propagation. In America, he said, it wasn't necessary to use the word Buddhism, but to point out how the Buddhist teachings are not philosophical concepts, but expressions of the truths of nature. He observed that Westerners who were interested in Buddhism tended to be well-educated and quite opinionated. The best way to teach people like that was in such a way that they would feel like they'd come to the conclusions themselves rather than adopting them from someone else. But he cautioned that if someone's views were so deep-seated to prevent them receiving the teachings, then not to argue with them. That would be as undignified as a millionaire arguing with someone poor and destitute. They would have to be left to their beliefs. It was their gamma. Luang Po and Paul found much to talk about. Luang Po was particularly interested in the state of Buddhism in America and its future propagation. Paul, for his part, had been practicing in the Zen Buddhist tradition since his return to the West and was eager to hear Luang Po's perspective on key Mahayana teachings. He was also curious to know Luang Po's view on providing mindful and compassionate end-of-life care for the terminally ill, a topic of great interest in Buddhist circles at that time. On working with the dying, which was becoming popular at the time of his visit, he said that most of the benefit was to be found by those who visited the dying by contemplating the truths of sickness and death rather than by those we might visit and try to help. He said that it was unlikely that we could affect the state of mind of a dying person very much, either positively or adversely. He took his cane and poked me in the chest and said, if this were a red-hot iron and I was poking you with it, and then I held out a piece of candy with my other hand, how much could the candy distract you? He also said that it was very difficult to know what people were experiencing at death by observing them. I told him how people described the transformations that came over the dying, how they went out smiling peacefully. He said, when pigs are taken to be slaughtered, they too are smiling up to the last moment. Can we say that the pigs are all going to Nibbana? He emphasized that, of course, we should treat dying people with love and compassion and look after them as best we can, but that if we don't turn it inward to contemplate, our own inevitable death, there's little real benefit for us. The theme of imminent death was to be one he returned to over and over as the trip progressed. Mahayana He seemed to get a kick out of hearing bits of Mahayana sutras that I would occasionally translate for him, often saying that they were expressions of deep wisdom but sometimes he would turn them around and challenge me, reminding me not to be satisfied with conceptual knowledge. Once, when I said that according to Mahayana, the Arahant has only travelled half the path, he asked, 
Has anyone traveled the whole path? When I said that Sariputta, the embodiment of wisdom in the Pali scriptures, became the fool in many Mahayana texts, he said, the people who read these things are the real fools. Needless to say, I'm sure he wasn't denigrating the sutras, only poking those people who merely grasp the words without experiencing the deep meaning. Talking about the Diamond Sutra, I said, this sutra says, he who sees all forms as unreal sees the Tathagata, which prompted him to look down at me very fiercely and say, yeah, is that so? More than once he asked me if I knew who wrote these sutras. Well, they say the Buddha did. Do you know who Buddha is, he demanded. I had to keep my mouth shut. On another occasion, I asked him once more about the Bodhisattva ideal. The Vimala Kirti Sutra says something like, Though beyond attachment, the Bodhisattva does not cut off the streams of passion so as to remain in the world for the benefit of sentient beings. Lumpur said, That's not talking about the mind itself, but the function of the mind. It's like asking, do you want this? No. Do you like it? Yes. Do you want it? No. Is it beautiful? Yes. So do you want it? No. But he really doesn't want it. He's not merely talking. When I said that the Bodhisattva concept was profound, he said, don't think like that. It's your own thinking that's shallow or deep, long or short. There's not so much to it, but you get caught in your doubting mind. Should we get everyone else to Nibbana first? The Buddha didn't leave us after his enlightenment, but stayed to help others gain liberation. But we can only do so much and that's enough. If we save all beings in the world now, the next Buddha won't have a world to be born into. When I asked Lung Po if he was going to return to teach in his next life, he said, No, I'm tired. One life of teaching is enough. He sounded like he meant it. I told him that one of the ideas that some teachers gave students was that since everything is empty, there weren't really such things as attachment and suffering. You can't do it that way, Lumpur said. You have to use the conventions. I said that many people contend that since the mind is inherently pure, since we all have Buddha nature, it's not necessary to practice. His answer was, You have something clean like this tray. I come and drop some shit on it. Will you say, This tray is originally clean, so I don't have to do anything to clean it now. On another occasion, I told him how some people think they're happy, so they don't want to practice. He said, If a child won't go to school, but tells his parents, It's okay, I'm fine like this. Is that right? Then, there are those who say that suffering is dharma, therefore it's good, so we should honor it, not try to end it. He said, Right. I tell them, Don't let go of it. Just hold on to it as long as you can and see what it feels like. He admitted that it was true that nirvana and samsara are inseparable, like the palm and the back of the hand, but that one has to turn the hand over. 
Finally, he said that if people present all these invincible arguments and don't want to be convinced of the truth, just let them be like that. Where will they get to? I.e., such people have to see it for themselves. Keeping the house clean It was now two years since Lung Po had become familiar with the idea of lay meditation retreats. Although he was impressed with the application of the people who attended them, he pointed out the pitfalls of a Dhamma practice focused on retreats but lacking a continuity of effort in the periods between them. Short periods of intense retreat, followed by much longer periods of heedlessness, could not lead to true progress. The experiences on retreat should be providing meditators with insight into the suffering inherent in heedless living and leading them to give up unwise behaviors and live more mindfully. If retreats were not inspiring a new perspective on daily non-retreat life, then, even if they gave access to some temporary elevated states of mind, they were not effective tools for awakening. People who took this approach were not dealing with the root causes of suffering. He said it was like a thief who gets caught by the police and hires a very good lawyer to defend him. As soon as he's acquitted, he goes back to thieving. When he gets caught again, he hires the same lawyer, and the whole process repeats itself again and again. The goal of meditation is not just a temporary respite from suffering or a rest from the turmoil of your life. You must investigate the causes of suffering and uproot the craving that is the root unrest in the mind. Only then will you experience true peace of mind. He compared meditation to building a house. You think that you practice meditation for a while and then you stop. That's not it. You must maintain constant mindfulness. Know the mental states that come and destroy your concentration and put you in a bother. Constantly know yourself. Developing concentration is not difficult. What's hard is looking after it. It doesn't take long to build a house, but maintaining the house and keeping it clean is something you have to keep doing for the rest of your life. Consistency, continuity was all. If you don't maintain continuity of practice, you won't see results, or only very minor ones. That's still better than nothing, but not always. Without results, some people can get bored with meditation and start to think it's a waste of time. Other activities may come to seem more important and they leave it behind them. He said failure occurred because meditators were not sincere enough and did not persevere to the point where results appear. In fact, everything is constantly ready to teach us. All we need to do is to cultivate wisdom and then we will clearly penetrate the truth of the world. When someone asked him to describe how he prepared his mind for meditation, he said, I just keep it where it always is. On a visit to Mount Rainier, Lung Po saw snow for the first time. He was underwhelmed. It looked more beautiful in photographs, he said. More to his liking was the herbal medicine given to him by a traditional Chinese doctor in Seattle. It gave him an unexpected new burst of energy that sustained him for the rest of his journey. Too many teachers, too little learning. 
certain themes appeared in Lung Po's teachings early on and were developed throughout his time in America. He emphasized the inseparable connections between the different factors of the path, especially the relationship between outer conduct and inner cultivation. He spoke on many occasions of the importance of continuity. He cautioned against unqualified teachers. He critiqued the dilettante approach to spiritual teachings in which people cherry-picked the teachings from various traditions that did not threaten the deepest attachments. He said that it was only by making a long-term commitment to the training that a meditator developed the qualities of grit and perseverance vital to success. Lung Po gave his first ever public address in America on the 1st of June at the Friends Meeting House in Seattle. Initially, Paul was surprised by the subject of the talk. It was mostly about Sila. He started right out by scolding everyone in a kindly way, sort of like, now you know you shouldn't be doing all these things you do. I was a little surprised by it, and it certainly wasn't as interesting or exciting as a talk about meditation, emptiness, etc. However, as time went by, and I saw him returning to this over and over, I began to appreciate it. And in the months and years to follow, I saw more and more how accurate he was. I think that was when he began telling people to be wary of meditation teachers. In subsequent talks and conversations, he went into a lot of detail on this subject. He saw a great difference between merely being able to practice meditation and giving the techniques to people on the one hand, and incorporating the practice into your whole life so that one's being is dharma. He felt that those people who were not really liberated from their cravings would naturally teach people according to their opinions and would be very indulgent with their students' habits and desires. The one thing that I'm afraid of in this country is that there are too many meditation teachers, Tibetan, Zen, Theravadan, it's chaotic. So many meditation teachers, but few people who are really meditating. I'm just afraid that you will fall foul of fake things, fake teachers. I'm very concerned about that. He gave the example of a religious seeker in the Buddha's time. He kept changing his teacher, constantly searching for new ones. Whenever he heard people praising a teacher, he would go to practice with him and listen to his Dhamma. Then he'd start comparing between Ajahn A and Ajahn B and Ajahn C. But the teacher's opinions did not coincide with each other, nor were they the same as his own opinion. His doubts grew and grew. Sometime later, he heard that Gotama, the great founder of a religion, was nearby. His desire to hear the teachings from a Buddha were especially strong, and he couldn't resist going to listen to him teach. After he'd paid his homage, the Buddha said to him, You will never put your doubts to rest through the words of another. The more you listen, the more you'll doubt. The more you listen, the more odd ideas you'll pick up. To end your doubts, all you need to do is to investigate your body and mind. Throw away thoughts of the past. Throw away thoughts of the future. They're both changeful. Look at the present moment. Look at what you're doing right now. Don't look elsewhere. Lumpur emphasized the point to his audience. Wisdom has never arisen 
from having a lot of knowledge. It's never arisen from jumping from one meditation method to another. It's born of a heartfelt knowledge and understanding, of the profundity of the guiding principles and then practicing accordingly. Someone asked, Zen teaches people to live naturally, but you seem to be saying the exact opposite. Would you please explain? I can't just teach what pleases people. Do that and they will never change. If the teacher refrains from saying those things that run counter to people's defilements, then those defilements will never disappear. Nothing will come of practice. You feel lazy, and so you let yourself be lazy. You want to sleep, so you just let yourself sleep. You feel like working, so you do some work. That's what it would be like to live a completely natural life. The Buddha taught us to live naturally, but with a wisdom that fully comprehends nature. If that's the case, then it wouldn't be wrong. But I'm afraid that you'd all be monkeys. You'd just allow yourself to be monkeys, and you'd never get to be human beings. When Zen teachers say these things, they are speaking wisely. They are teaching us to have the wisdom that knows the nature of nature. Nature is Dhamma. Dhamma is nature. If you understand nature, then that's how it is. But I'm afraid people's knowledge won't reach that far. The Buddha teaches people to go against the grain. If the mind is greedy, then go against the greed in order to eliminate it. If there's anger in the mind, then go against the anger in order to eliminate it. If there's delusion in the mind, then go against it in order to eliminate delusion. Don't let the thief in. Lung Po had always presented the path of practice as one demanding an integrated approach in which the trainings of conduct of the heart and of wisdom as laid down by the Buddha were to be seen as inseparable parts of one whole. In America he found something rather different. A new eclectic Buddhism was emerging, one characterized by the quest for a distinctly American Dhamma suited to the prevailing society and culture and without any necessary adherence to traditional Asian forms, often referred to as baggage. The talk was of extracting the essence of all the different Buddhist traditions that had found their way to America. Lung Po's concern was firstly whether the leaders of the Buddhist community were up to such a profound task, and secondly that in a pick-and-mix approach the organic relationship between practices fundamental to the Eightfold Path could easily be overlooked. Furthermore, adopting only those elements of the tradition that conformed to a non-Buddhist society's current views and values risked narrowing the tradition or even distorting it. Lung Po was particularly concerned to point out the vital connection between the practice of sila and the more profound levels of inner cultivation. He arrived in America with a reputation as a great meditation master, and it was not only Paul who was surprised by how much time he devoted to talking about sila. He asserted that when people committed themselves to meditation practices without a commensurable effort to purify their actions and speech, no lasting benefit would ensue. This was not the Thai Theravada view of things, he said. It was the law of nature. Sila was the indispensable foundation of practice. It was the fundamental tool needed to build a noble life. 
It was the quality that made a human being a fitting vessel for the Dhamma. Take what I have said away with you and think about it. Breaking any of the precepts has consequences. Reflect on this well. Meditate on the precepts. If you see clearly the consequences of transgressing the precepts, you will be able to abandon transgression. Most of the questions he received about individual precepts centered on the third one, dealing with sexual misconduct, and the fifth one, with the consumption of alcohol and drugs. He explained that the third precept is intended to prevent splits and turmoil over sexual matters, to promote moderation, just rightness. Sexual promiscuity creates unrest. It's not Dhamma practice, and it's not the middle way. Whatever practitioners do, they should have boundaries, a frame for their actions, honesty and sincerity towards each other. He summarized that celibacy was most conducive to progress in Dhamma. Those unable or unwilling to lead a celibate life should cultivate contentment with their partner. For a moderate lifestyle that supported the practice of Dhamma, one sexual partner was more than sufficient. Transgression of the fifth precept did not require intoxication. Any amount of alcohol or drugs was sufficient. Lung Po said that you did not need to be drunk before alcohol undermined your sense of right and wrong. The consumption of alcohol, even in so-called moderation, created the conditions for suffering to arise. Heedlessness was like a thief, always ready to steal your good qualities. Why would you want to give a thief even the smallest opportunity to run off with your most valued possessions? If you knew someone was a thief, would it be a good idea to let him into your house? Lung Po's manner was noticeably different in the West. He was almost comically polite to his audience. He apologized, unthinkable in Thailand, when he said anything even slightly controversial. It was an approach that might have simply been the expression of a natural reticence in a new land, but it's hard to imagine, experienced rhetorician that he was, that Luang Po was unaware of how charming and lovable, and therefore persuasive it made him appear. Today, I've given you some things to reflect on, and I'd like to ask your forgiveness. Today I've talked a lot. I've talked a lot because of a love of the Dhamma, I've never been to America before, you see. Now that I'm here, I'm going to leave a lot of good things for you to reflect on. If they're wrong, please don't blame me. Blame the Buddha. He was the one who sent me and made me say these things. And on another occasion, he concluded, I'd like to ask your forgiveness for the Dhamma teachings today. Sometimes I'm not aware of the weight of my words. I've given various perspectives which might differ from the customs in this country, and so I ask your pardon. I want there to be goodness and nobility. If you practice Dhamma, then I want you to know the true flavor of the Dhamma in your hearts. So I would like to really thank you all for coming to listen today and ask your forgiveness for everything. It was over the top. Was he teasing them, some wondered? but irresistible. Free through rules As a predominantly Protestant country since its inception, 
America, unlike Europe, has few historical associations with monasticism and little sympathy with it. One of the topics on Buddhist lips at the time of Lumpur's visit was the likelihood of American Buddhism developing as a predominantly lay-based tradition and of that being a strength rather than a weakness. It's hard to say to what extent Lumpur's comments were prompted by knowledge of this debate, but he did speak on a number of occasions of the importance of the monastic vocation. After a screening of the BBC documentary The Mindful Way, filmed in Watpapong, he was asked the question, is it possible for householders to practice as well as monks? The most convenient way to practice is as a monastic, because monastics are celibate. They're free to come and go. They have no family. Householders can practice, but the path is a roundabout one. There are bends in the road. It's hard because you have a spouse, children, all kinds of things to see to. A householder can practice, but it's a little bit indirect. More tongue-in-cheek, perhaps, was the salutary effect he suggested an increased monastic presence might have on overpopulation. The world was already in a turmoil because there were too many people in it. As they struggled for meagre resources, violence and killing was rife. If more people adopted the celibate life, they would be helping to reduce the number of new people coming into it. On a more serious note, he said that in his opinion, monastics make the best teachers. They need to make no compromises with the Dhamma. Untrammeled by family responsibilities, they make a full-time commitment. Having very few personal needs or distractions, they are able to give themselves wholeheartedly to teaching the Dhamma to themselves and others. Not needing to make a livelihood from teaching, they are not easily led into diluting or distorting the teachings or catering to their audience. This view encountered a certain amount of skepticism from members of his audience, some of whom were disciples of married clergy in the Zen and Tibetan traditions. He said that the responsibility of each practitioner was to reach the stage of certainty where there was no longer any need to rely on an external guide. But in the meantime, he was suggesting caution rather than prejudice, and in important matters, was it not wiser to exercise caution than to dispense with it? Vancouver Lumpur spent the 6th of June in Vancouver, meeting with members of the Thai community during the day and teaching in the evening at the University of British Columbia. The program was organized by Ajahn Tiradamo, a Canadian disciple of Lumpur, who had arranged for his visit to his family in British Columbia to coincide with Lumpur's trip. At the university, Lumpur led an audience containing only a minority of serious meditators in a one-hour meditation session. For most of his audience, it was a far longer period than they had ever sat before. Adding to the challenge was the fact that Lumpur had given no prior indication of how long the meditation would last. It was one of the unpredictable let-go-and-watch-your-mind-or-else-suffer-and-want-to-die experiences with which the monks were all too familiar. Lumpur had perhaps decided to give his audience the opportunity to investigate expectation, discomfort, boredom, aversion, doubt and attachment to timetables, the Dhamma teaching before the Dhamma talk. How many appreciated the gift was hard to tell. Lumpur had perceived a pervasive fear of death in Western society. 
It was not so much that this fear was absent in Thailand, but in the West it appeared more extreme. Seeing elderly people adopting youthful styles of dress and behavior as if they were proclaiming, I'm not old, confirmed him in this view. In his Dhamma talk at the university, he spoke about the inevitability of death. Of course, medical research was a good thing, he said, but if people didn't die of one illness, they would die of another. Death would never be brought to an end by such means. Only by following the path of the Buddha could the sufferings of birth and death be completely transcended. He said that it was important that everyone investigate this matter of birth, old age, sickness and death. It was a cause of laughter and celebration when a baby was born, and tears when the same person eventually died. In fact, he said, the two were inseparable. One inevitably led to the other. With a smile that softened his words, he said, If you're really going to cry, do it at the birth. Here comes another one, another one to die. Being willing to look at life with open eyes could show the importance of the practices of Dhamma. Paul summarized. The bottom line, he said, was to give up everything for Dharma. What does everyone love most of all? Their own life. We can sacrifice everything for life. If we give our life for Dharma, there will be no problem for us. Lung Po, responding to the university setting, spoke on the topic of worldly versus spiritual knowledge. These days, there are so many fields of knowledge, so many ologies, too many to count, and they don't concede much to each other, do they? I have many Western disciples who've been to university. It made them even more foolish. It made them suffer even more, made them even more contentious than they were before they went, because they weren't familiar with the owner of their knowledge. These sciences are all fine, but they must converge in Buddha science. If they don't, then they're of no real benefit. There's no integration. There's still jealousy and competition and continual turmoil. But if they can unite within the boundaries of sila, then they become Buddha science. Buddha science encompasses all the humanities and sciences. It doesn't allow them to go awry or to cause problems. When Buddha science encompasses all fields of knowledge, keeping them within the framework of sila, then everyone becomes like siblings, free of jealous and malice. If you study some field of knowledge, are proficient in it, and merge it with Buddha science, then you are called a Buddhist. Wherever you go, you're serene. On the two nights that he gave teachings in Vancouver, people followed Luang Po back to the rented apartment where he was staying. He spoke to them until almost midnight. After they left, he continued speaking to his attendants until three in the morning. For Paul, these were memorable nights. The Chinese medicine was clearly doing something for him. Not only was he extremely energetic, but those late night sessions were some of the most incredible dharma I ever heard from him. For much of the time, he had his eyes half closed, and he wasn't talking to anyone in particular. It was more like he was revealing his stream of awareness. He said, We talk about things to be developed and things to give up. But there's nothing to develop, nothing to give up. The way he spoke, 
it wasn't exactly clear whether he was referring to himself or just generally speaking about the viewpoint of ultimate truth, but he certainly seemed to know what he was talking about. He mentioned the Arahant and said, the Arahant is really different from ordinary people. Then he coyly added, of course, we don't see Arahants nowadays, but I'm going by what it says in the books. And he said that the things that seem to be true or valuable to us are false and worthless to an Arahant. Trying to interest an Arahant in worldly things would be like offering lead in exchange for gold. We think, here's a whole pile of lead. Why wouldn't he want to trade his piece of gold, which is so much smaller? There was incredible energy emanating from Lumpur on those nights. We were aching from sitting so long, and Ajahn Pabakaro and Ajahn Tiradamo would start nodding off in their chairs until Lumpur would rouse us with something hilariously funny. He talked about religion in the West and said, People here follow Christianity, Santa Claus. He dresses up in his suit and kids sit on his lap and he says, What would you like? And he did a pantomime of Santa that left us in stitches. Like a Worm On the 9th of June, back in Seattle, Lung Po took his meal at the house of a Thai family. Afterwards, he spoke about the decline in the Thai Sangha. In what Paul would call his faux grumbling mode, Lung Po spoke of how men were becoming monks to maintain the custom more than to get any real value from the time spent in the robes. It was not like in the old days when people would spend at least three years as monks. The owner of the house had been away from Thailand long enough to have no qualms about openly expressing his disagreement. He said, Suppose that every Thai man was to become a monk for four or five years, nothing would ever get done. If everybody became monks, there would be nobody doing any work in the country. That's how I see it. Lung Po chuckled. To laughs all round, he said that was how earthworms thought. He quoted an old folk story that the reason worms excrete the earth that they've just eaten is because they're afraid that otherwise there would soon be none left. Of course, it was impossible that worms could digest all the earth in the world. The idea that encouraging people to spend longer in robes was going to destroy the economy was equally unrealistic. It just wasn't going to happen. You couldn't even get everyone to be a monk for seven or fifteen days. Some people become monks for all their life, some for five or six years, some for six or seven days. It's natural for it to be like that. On returning to the Kapil house, Lung Po sat talking to Paul, and the conversation turned to a friend of his who'd been coming to listen to Lung Po's teachings. Catherine had told me that she felt that Lung Po's teaching was true, but it was impossible to practice in this society. He replied that people use similar arguments in Thailand. I'm young, so I don't have the opportunity to practice, but when I'm old, I'll practice. Lung Po asked, Would you say, I'm young, so I don't have time to eat. When I get older, I'll eat. Again, he poked me with his cane and said, If this were on fire, would you say, I'm suffering, it's true, but since I live in this society, I can't get away from it. I mentioned that Catherine's husband liked to go rock climbing and she felt that it was like a meditation practice for him. Lung Po asked, when he climbs on the rocks 
does he see the Four Noble Truths? I said that I didn't know, though perhaps he didn't. Then I said that sometimes I thought that when someone does a worldly activity with full attention, there can be deep concentration. For example, a musician might have factors of jhana present when he plays, such as one-pointedness, rapture and so on, except that it was in an unskillful way. Lung Po just said no, nobody plays music and enters jhana, only westerners. You people don't know about jhana. He asked me about Zen once more, so I recited the Heart Sutra for him, doing the best I could with a spontaneous translation. When I finished, he said, No emptiness either. No bodhisattva. He asked me where the sutra came from, and I said it was reputed to have been spoken by Buddha. No Buddha. Then he said, This is talking about deep wisdom, beyond all conventions, but it doesn't mean that we should ignore the conventions. How could we teach without them? We have to use names for things. Isn't that so? Insight Meditation Society On the 10th of June, Lung Po, Ajahn Pabakaro and Paul flew to New York en route to the Insight Meditation Society, IMS, a retreat center in Barrie, Massachusetts. They were traveling there at the invitation of one of the center's founders, Jack Cornfield, who had spent some months as a monk in Wat Bapong a few years before. As they began their journey, Paul found that Luang Paul was still having severe difficulties with North American geography. Was Massachusetts also in the United States, he asked. What about Boston? Was that in New York? Luang Paul stayed at IMS for eight days and taught at a retreat attended by around 70 meditators. In the mornings, Luang Paul would spend time with the staff, mostly old students from the center, giving them the opportunity to ask questions. In the afternoon, he would conduct a question-and-answer session with the retreatants, and in the evening he would lead a meditation session and give a discourse. Paul, who was helping with the translation, remembered. For his morning sessions with the staff, he quickly established the theme of facing the executioner. When people came in, he would ask, Did you do your homework today? He told them they should think about death at least three times in a day once in the morning, afternoon, and evening. Don't be like Po. That's what he'd started calling me. It's the Thai corruption of the Pali Bodhi, i.e. enlightenment, and commonly used as a name. He'd say, he just walks around. He looks at the trees and the birds. He eats his lunch. He never thinks that he's going to die someday. I became the straight man for him and would sometimes prompt him with questions. The idea of death is usually remote, I once told him. If I felt some danger, it might be more real. Don't you see the danger, he said? Every breath. I said that I usually felt that for me, death was far in the future. I was destined to live a long time, a hundred years or more. That's the wisdom of Devadatta, he replied. In the scriptures, Devadatta is the Buddha's evil cousin who thought his best interests lie in creating a schism in the Sangha, but as a result of his efforts, fell into the deepest hell realms. The wisdom of Devadatta is thus shorthand for foolishness of the most abject variety.
During the retreat, Luang Po emphasized the Four Noble Truths and the guiding principles of practice. He answered many questions about meditation. On the level of access concentration, you can compare the mind to a chicken imprisoned in its coop. It's still walking around, it's not motionless. It's not asleep, it's not dead. But it has a limit to its movements that's in your control. Once the mind is pacified, then investigate the body. Investigate the 32 parts of the body. If your mind is still agitated, then keep your eyes on the thoughts and emotions that your mind fabricates. See them for what they are. Impermanent, impersonal, without any abiding selfhood. In practice, it's not necessary to know a lot of things, but merely to maintain awareness right at this point until there arises a sense of disenchantment and dispassion. Then you will let go of attachment to the five hindrances, and it's that which is the goal of meditation. There was a question about the five aggregates. Do the five aggregates have any effect on peace? Is meditation practice the basis for understanding the five hindrances? With wisdom, the five aggregates will help you to be liberated. If you're foolish, then they will cause you suffering. If you're foolish, you can say that they're like thieves who rob you. But if you understand their true nature, they can make you enlightened. It's like you don't know Ajahn Chah. You've just heard his name and seen his picture. It's still not enough. But today you've met him and spoken with him, which means that you know one part of him. If you realize the Dhamma that he's taught you, then you would know all of him. Plowing up the stump On the second day of the retreat, Lung Po made a suggestion. Listening to the Dhamma in a large group is difficult. A large pot of curry doesn't taste so delicious. There are too many things mixed together, not enough to go around. It doesn't taste so good. A small pot of curry is more delicious. It would be better to divide into smaller groups for discussion. So from that day onwards, the retreatants were divided into five discussion groups of about 15 people each, so that everyone would have a chance to ask Lung Po questions more conveniently. To a query on the goal of practice, he replied, We come here to practice in order that we won't have to practice in the future. We're born in order not to be born again. We do this so we won't have to do it again. We practice so that the mind may disengage from sensuality and suffering in order that there will be no more suffering in future. Paul observed. In the group interviews, Lung Po generally gave direct and simple answers to complicated questions. He told people to put the books away to rely on themselves, to have determination and perseverance. Many problems didn't require a lot of thinking. All that was required was the patience to bear with the unpleasant until conditions revealed themselves as impermanent and empty. People would continually talk about the difficulties they faced as lay practitioners. He said that it was difficult to practice as a householder. It's like trying to meditate in prison. You sit down and begin, and the prison officer comes and shouts, Get up! March over there! 
Lung Po returned to a familiar theme, Dhamma practice as eliminating the underlying cause of suffering rather than juggling the symptoms. He reprised a favorite simile. It's like you go for a walk and you trip over a stump. So you get a hatchet and cut it off at ground level. But it grows back and you trip over it again. So you cut it off again. But it keeps on growing back. This goes on and on. You'd be better off getting a tractor and ploughing it up. He pointed to the inherent conflict in wishing fervently to be free of the suffering that arises from indulgence in defilement without having to let go of the defilement itself. Some people couldn't bear to lose the pleasure they derived from the defilement. Others claimed that it was impossible to let go. And yet, they still hoped for a solution. He said it was like sitting on an anthill. The ants are biting. You feel uncomfortable, but you refuse to get up and move somewhere else. Or you come to the teacher, holding something burning hot in your hand, and you complain, Ajahn, this is hot. The teacher says, so put it down. And you say, I can't put it down, but I don't want it to be hot. So what can the teacher do for you? Meditators could spend their whole life going back and forth with themselves, trying to find what exactly they needed to do to let go of the defilements. It was like contemplating a journey. You ask yourself, should I go today? Should I? Maybe I'll go tomorrow. Then the next day, should I go or shouldn't I? And you keep on doing this day after day until you die and you never go anywhere. You've got to think, go and be done with it. Successful translation depends upon the audience being confident that the translator is accurately representing the words of the speaker. Lung Po's mischievousness appeared while Jack Cornfield was translating for him. Jack remembers him saying, Even though I don't speak any English, I know the truth is that my translator leaves out all the really hard things I say. I tell you painful things, and he leaves out all the things that have a sting in them, makes them soft and gentle for you. You can't trust him. When asked a question about the state of the world, Lung Po would encourage the questioner to focus on the world of direct experience, rather than the one that could be read about in the newspapers. You're asking about the world. Do you know what the world is? It's just the senses and their objects, and the ignorance that grasps at them. Personal experience was the only way to verify the teachings. When asked about enlightenment, he said that it was like the taste of a banana. You had to put it in your mouth before you could know the taste. Every now and then, Paul would get a spontaneous personal teaching. One afternoon when the session was over, I was unplugging my tape recorder and I touched the metal prong of the plug while it was still connected. I got a shock and dropped it immediately. Lung Po noticed and he said, Oh, how come you could let go of that so easily? Who told you to? It was a good illustration of what he was trying to teach. Finally, he told people that they were always welcome to come to his monastery and stay for a while. What Bapong is like a factory, he said. After the product is finished, it can be sent out into the world. But it's easier to train people if they're far from their home. 
Poe ran away, he said. If I were younger, I'd drag him back by his ear. Following the retreat, Luang Po met with the Korean Zen master, Sung San Sun Sanim. They both seemed to greatly enjoy the meeting. Paul remembered Luang Po being particularly taken with one of his new friend's stories. A Zen monk sneaks into a lecture hall where some great scholar is talking about one mind. All things come from the one mind the scholar teaches, at which the Zen monk comes forth and challenges him. You say all things come from the one mind. Okay, so now tell me, where does the one mind come from? When the preacher was unable to answer, the monk beat him. Luang Po laughed and said, he deserved a beating, all right. Afterwards, he repeated this several times, laughing and saying what a good story that was. He couldn't answer where the one mind comes from, so he really deserved a beating. After a couple of days with the Buddhist community at the appropriately named Anicca Farm, Luang Po flew back to England. A Rural Seclusion On the 22nd of June, shortly after Luang Po arrived and two years since they first moved in, the Sangha finally left Hampstead Vihara. Their destination was a 90-minute car journey away, on the outskirts of the small village of Chithurst in the county of Sussex. It was there that stood a hundred acres of woodland, now formally offered to the Sangha. But southern England was not Thailand. Strict laws prevented the monks from simply building huts amongst the trees as they saw fit. Instead, they were to move into a crumbling Victorian manor house nearby, purchased for them by the EST. Before joining the Sangha at Chithurst House, the soon-to-be-renamed Chittaviveka Forest Monastery, Luang Po returned to Oakenholt in Oxfordshire. There, he attended the ordination ceremony of a young Englishman who was entering into the Burmese Sangha with a highly respected master, Mahasi Sayadaw, as his preceptor. The occasion afforded a telling glimpse of the difference between Asian and European sensibilities. For many of the English guests, brought up in a non-Buddhist culture, the contrast between the two renowned Theravadan monks, the engaging Luang Po, seen as warm, and the undemonstrative Sayadaw, seen as cold, was startling. Luang Po seemed more inspiring. It was clear that in a non-Buddhist country, where the Arahant ideal was not firmly established, the personality of the teacher was much more vital to the arising of faith than it was in a traditional Buddhist nation. In fact, the personalities of Arahants vary widely. They may be introverted or extroverted, urbane or gruff, outwardly warm or cool. This is widely recognized in Buddhist circles in Southeast Asia. In the West, it seemed that people were much less likely to ask themselves, would I like to be as wise as him, as they were to ask, would I like to be that kind of person? Luang Po arrived in Chithurst to see the first tangible fruit of the decision he had made to allow his monks to come to the West and the advice he had given. The gifting of the woodland had been a vindication of his insistence that, while in London, the monks maintain their practice of alms round, even if they received no food in their bowls. He had explained that alms round is not only about gathering food, but also about being seen. Arms Round provides an occasion in which monastics, simply through their appearance and deportment, 
may inspire those who see them to try to find out more about the Dhamma. One of Lung Po's favorite stories dealt with the occasion when Venerable Asaji was first seen by a wandering ascetic who would go on to seek out the Buddha and eventually become the great disciple, Venerable Sariputta. In the present case, it was not a wandering ascetic, but Paul James, a jogger on Hampstead Heath, who became inspired and followed the monks back to the temple. Some months later, after getting to know and trust Ajahn Sumedho and his fellow monks, Paul revealed to them a non-spiritual problem that he was struggling with. He had received an area of woodland, hammer wood, as an inheritance, with the condition that he neither sold it nor cut down the trees. The forest had become a financial burden on him, and he was looking to donate it to an appropriate charitable body. Would the Sangha be interested? When George Sharp drove down to West Sussex to see the forest for himself, he found Hammer Wood to be an idyllic spot. Not only that, but as if hidden benevolent forces were at work, just a short walk away from the wood, stood a large, semi-derelict Victorian house for sale at a cut-down price. In an imperfect world, it was as near ideal as could be hoped for. Fearful that the house would be sold before he could convene a meeting of the trust, George agreed on a price for it that very day. It was an audacious gamble, given that the funds would have to be raised by selling Hampstead Vihara. A number of people excluded from this momentous decision were left disgruntled, one of whom arrived some months later in Wadpapong. He painted for Lung Po a black picture of events. According to him, the move was rash, premature, and involved an irresponsible use of funds. Lung Po listened impassively and reserved judgment. It was true that the present state of Chithurst House posed considerable challenges to potential inhabitants. Ajahn Suchito later described the conditions that awaited them there. The owner had let the place run to seed, Uncleared gutters had broken and spilt water over the walls so that the dry rot had spread. As things had broken down, they'd been abandoned. When we moved in, only four of the twenty or so rooms were still in use. The electricity had blown, the roof leaked, the floors were rotten, and there was only one cold water tap for washing. The house was full of junk, all kinds of bric-a-brac from pre-war days. The outbuildings were crumbling, roofs stoved in by fallen trees. The cesspit had not been emptied for twenty-five years. The gardens were overgrown. A fine-walled fruit garden was a chest-high sea of nettles. Over thirty abandoned cars protruded through the brambles that smothered the vicinity of the old coach house. Lung Po recognized that Chithurst House would require months, probably years, of hard work to renovate, but there was nothing wrong with that. Forest monks had always been accustomed to long, hard work when building their monasteries. The enjoyment he took in his visit can be seen clearly in the BBC documentary shot while he was there. The Buddha Comes to Sussex includes priceless footage of a beaming Luang Por conversing with English vicars and expounding on the Dhamma with the aid of a large apple. Ajahn Amaro arrived the following year from Thailand. He was unfazed by the work ahead confident that the training he had received from Luang Po had fully prepared him for it. It was not seen as a great imposition on our practice. It was just simply, well, we practice with this. You wear your boiler suit, 
you put your pack of dry rot fluid on your back, and you climb into your chimney with your spray gun, and you meditate. And you see that Lung Po's concern with our ability to adapt and to develop the right attitude to whatever situation was occurring was far more important than having precise conditions for formal meditation practice. It was making the quality of adaptation the most important thing, the readiness to live in peace with the world rather than getting the world to fit your idea of what peace is.